First Class Sailing, take the helm. Welcome to another of our regular series of podcasts. I'm Kerry Herford-Jones and on behalf of First Class Sailing, thank you for joining us. Today I'm delighted to introduce to you a gentleman who started sailing back in 1984 and via the route of uh, his own self-built trailer sailor, he became a yacht master instructor in 1990 skippering big boats all over the world and going as far south as the Falkland Islands. He's currently rear commodore sailing for Warsash Sailing Club and splits his time both instructing and examining yacht masters along with teaching celestial navigation, offshore racing safety and boat handling skills to name but a few. Nigel, thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. Pleasure, how are you doing? Good stuff, thank you. Yeah, very well indeed. Let's get on with the first question then. Nigel, just uh, give me the overview in terms of, as an examiner, when you're doing Yacht Master, what, what is the kind of outline what can people expect when they're with you on the boat for the first time? I mean, the first thing you, you need to remember is that examiners are human, we're sailors, probably quite passionate about what we do. And the main thing we're looking for is, are you actually safe at the level you're working at in both boat handling, navigation and skippering skills? And, and realistically, it's your chance to prove to them that you're up to that standard. That's a great outline. And I think people, when they when they join you for that first time, having been through it myself, is, you know, we're all nervous about this. We, you know, exam conditions, I think, bring out the nervousness as a natural reaction. And that's quite understandable, isn't it? It is. I mean, the majority, actually all examiners really start with a brief beforehand to try and set the scene. And mm. in some cases, trying to calm the candidate down. We've all mm. been through the system. We've all had to pass our coastals, offshores, in some case, ocean um, exams and commercial assessments. We know what it's like on the other side of the fence. So it's not in anybody's interest for me to, to rack up the nerves at all. Um, <laughs> so initially, it's, a, it's a, a chat. We talk through the parameters of the exam and set the scene, basically. Because you yourself have to go through a, a, an exam quite regularly, don't you? Yeah, every, every five years uh, as an instructor uh, and examiner, I go through my updates, which take about three days each, I think. So we've got to prove that we're up to standards to be able mm. to teach and to examine to the mm. required standards. And when you've got those candidates uh, in front of you and you, you're giving them that first briefing, clearly, you know, you're getting through to them that... They, this is their chance to shine. This is a chance to show you. What sort of things are you really drilling down on for that exam? What's the thing you're really looking out for when you get to the, the, the hard nitty gritty of it? There's an awful lot of things that go together to make a yacht master. Not everybody has everything. If everybody had to have everything, to be honest, very few people would pass. <laughs> uh, yes. um, we're really looking at uh, boat, boat handling aspects of the candidates, navigation, do they under-navigate? Do they over-navigate? That's a major mm. challenge for some people. They, they glue themselves to a chart table. Can they actually handle the boat and handle the crew? Some people get so nervous that the crew really are, are run ragged. Yes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, let's, let's take a couple of those elements out of that. When you're talking about navigation, you know, we are moving into, and we already are, in a really strong technological age but the RYA quite understandably are still looking for some really good basic skills aren't they because let's face it electronics have a propensity to sometimes not work well yes I mean one of my Yachtmaster Ocean candidates last year came with a fantastic phrase he says GPS is great you know exactly where you are but in reality you're lost with little 
<laughs> and with little spatial awareness, it's very true. <laughs> it is very true. <laughs> and that, yeah, people do get tied into it again, though. You talked about getting t- sort of tied into the uh, into the chart table. They can also get tied into electronics as well. What we don't want to see is somebody who's staring at a little screen and has no spatial awareness of what's going on around them. Because sometimes you do switch systems off or just say, OK, uh, mm. let's go on from here without using mm. the GPS. Or let's find a certain point without using GPS. And a lot of it's about spatial awareness. And also the GPS, in a lot of ways, it takes that spatial awareness away from people. It's a little bit driving. I suppose I'm based in Southampton area. Drive to central London. You've got the sat-nav in your car. Do you really really understand where you are half the time? Or are you just following that arrow? On a screen, uh, yeah, I think you put the nail on the head there. That that is absolutely true of all things in this world. We do get, and we, you're absolutely right. We almost get immersed in the, the electronics become part of us rather than us using it as a tool, if you will, um, to 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 facilitate what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, very very much so. Navigation is really about spatial awareness. I mean, a couple of top tips that I use numerous times on debriefs. Firstly, the depth sounder doesn't lie. If you only use the depth sounder and nothing else for your navigation, you can probably eliminate about 95% of the chart you're using. Because basically, you take height, height of tide in consideration, and if you've got an offset on the depth sounder, if it says you're on five meters, and, and actually you think where you are is in 22 meters, you're wrong. So, but most people now forget about the depth sounder. Mm. Good point. Proactive navigation. Um, a lot of people are almost reactive going from boy to boy to boy and really have got no awareness of the bigger picture around them. Transits. You can, we can pre, pre-look for transits. They don't necessarily have to line up, but it may tell you if these two line up, we've gone past. Or yeah. when these line up, we're almost there. Yeah. And actually, yeah. a transit in a depth is one of the most mm. simple uh, navigation features you can get mm. and one of the most mm. accurate. And it's that it, it's breaking it down into some of the simple parts, if you will, because I think, you know, you can get a bit complicated in, and you make it complicated as a, as a skipper. You can overcomplicate matters. And I think the point you're making, if I may, is that actually break it down into some simple parts uh, and it'll help you to actually, if you want to achieve a, a result, a Yacht Master qualification, this could actually help you to achieve such a, a, such a goal. Very, very much so. Um, I mean, the other fact is we don't go to sea to put to put ourselves under stress. There's, mm. there's enough stressful things out there to throw at us. So keeping navigation simple is the way to go, realistically. Yeah. And yeah. and having lots of tools in the armory. Yes, GPS mm. is great. I use GPS all the time, but it's part of my armory. It's not the Bible. There's there's lots of fantastic features on it. It's quick. It's easy. It's great for confirmation. But really, mm. I like to see the bigger picture of what's around me. Yeah, and, and enjoy it. I think that's the point yeah. I found, is that you get more enjoyment out of it. It's a bit like when, when, when you start out, perhaps, with maps and stuff at school. You get more enjoyment out of knowing the bigger picture and knowing how it goes. Let's see if we may look at some of... Um, because I know you have a wealth of, uh, a wealth of stories and experiences to draw on. Perhaps the sort of thing that one could learn from if you're putting yourself into a yacht master examination situation. Some of the things you've seen over the years that perhaps we could learn from, both, dare I say, good and bad. Well, yeah, 
I've seen pick, numerous people pick up the wrong transits or they're focusing on a boy or they've misread it. Actually, one of the biggest mm. things is people are very good at drawing little sketches of their passage, yeah. which focuses primarily on voyage. Now, it's making an inaccurate copy of an accurate document. Then once you've made that inaccurate copy, you don't refer back to the main document at all, which is a... A bit of a controversial side because the instructors always mm. say, "Oh yeah, make a little sketch of you where you're going." Yeah, yeah. Uh, my background's military. How many battles were ever won on Plan A? <laughs> Not many. No, none. I don't think. <laughs> so why put all your eggs in the basket and write a very detailed Plan A, but have no backup Plan B? It's having that overview of what's around you, and certainly mm. drawing a little passage plan up, then putting the chart away back in the fold inside the chart table mm. is suicide, basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, because you, you're at a stroke. You're saying my my route plan, my passage plan, my navigational detail is actually better than the chart. Yes, and it's very easy. I mean, prime example, Hillhead Boy, which is flashes every two and a half seconds. A lot of people read is flashing twice in five seconds. <laughs> so they're going around saying, Hillhead Boy's not there. It's not that. I can't find it. Uh, and we're just going, yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. Because let's face it, you you know that voyage out there personally. You you know almost every single boy in the Solon, don't you? I don't need a chart. Sorry to say. <laughs> I probably spend about 300 hours per year at night in the Solons. Uh, uh, yeah. So... Realistically, yes, I'm very familiar with everything around there. Uh, and what's wrong on Navionics as well and electronic charting, because mm. are, it's not perfect. Mm. And some things, I'm quite happy that it's not perfect, because mm. it proves some mm. points. Yeah, now, now that, that we, could, we could spend a whole podcast just talking on that, that level of detail that is or isn't there, because, again, that's electronics, and even to a point charts, is sometimes it can draw yep. you in, and you, you be, it becomes a Bible, and a literal Bible in the sense of this is the fact, where, in fact, your point, I think, is it's a guide. Yes. Um, we're very lucky in, in the UK with our charting, um, in that... The vast majority of the commercial harbours have got very accurate charting, um, yeah. certainly yeah. for the main channels. Um, I've got some charts of other parts of the world, and if you look at the little datum box it, on the corner of the chart, it says, mm. surveyed by lead line and sextants between 1876 <laughs> and 1892. <laughs> and we're trying to go in these places with a, a GPS that's accurate to five metres. Certainly parts of the UK coast outside the main harbours has not mm. been surveyed for 50 years. Mm. Uh, and Things move. Rocks well, don't, what, but, you know, depth scan. Yeah. What, what rocks are the miss between those soundings? Right? Point. And yeah. people then expect, yeah, cross... I mean, good examples in the soil that we've got Brambles Bank, we've got Shingles, we've got various mm. other banks and things. Mm. And people expect that depth to be 100% accurate. Hmm. Now, all Good it point. takes is a gale, and that's yep. going to move those banks around a little bit. Um, hmm. If you look at the progression of charts over the last, I suppose, my playing the songs over the last 40 years, um, you can see how certain banks are, are gradually moving. 
And uh, would I trust the debt service from those banks? No, I wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Uh, no. Not no. when people want to go with, say, a point, point 0.3 of a metre clearance on them. And I'm going, it's a little close, Nigel. A little close. <laughs> it's, uh, and yeah, and from my perspective, running boats aground is, is not a good move these days. No, 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 no. And not just the embarrassment, it's the physical damage. And uh, yeah, we can go into that as well in some detail. But it is, I think, you know, having having come out with you, having sailed with you, it, it is about that margin of safety. It's safe sailing, enjoyable sailing, getting more out of it. But safety is paramount, isn't it, at the end of the day? It is, yeah. And as means part of my brief is it's part of it is yeah good seam, good seamanship is expected. Yeah. Um, yeah. Collisions with boats, voyage, harbour walls, the seabed, uh, and dangerous <laughs> boat handling, not recommended. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't yeah. say it's an automatic fail, but it's mm. certainly not recommended. It's not. Uh, it's not going to help you get the ticket. Let's be honest. At the end no. of the day. <laughs> um, so we talked about some of the things that you perhaps are concerned, should we say. What about the things that impress you uh, when you're out with, with a crew, when you're out with some Yachtmaster yeah. candidates? Them actually enjoying what they're doing. Now, some of the best candidates I've had made the whole experience enjoyable. We're not out there for the good of our health um, to take on various stresses and things. And it can be very stressful being examining people because yeah. you've got a lot of expectations to manage. <clears throat> And you've got to manage their stress levels as well. So you go out and you, with a crew who are happy to get on with each other, are comfortable in the situation, are confident, and you can see them ticking things off. Yeah. And some people at the end of the exam say, well, you didn't really examine me. And I said, I didn't have to, you examined yourself. Everything I could see was just happening. And if somebody's an open book and they're talking to their crew about what's going on and what they're looking for, mm. etc. What is left for me to ask? Mm, they've demonstrated, yeah. yeah. Whereas other people won't tell me anything. They'll clamp up. They are nervous. You then think, well, does that mean that they're insecure or they're mm. really on their limits of knowledge? So then I've got to ask questions. That possibly makes them more nervous. Yes. And the whole thing spirals down. Yeah. So yeah. one of the best advice I can probably give to anybody is, don't do it unless you're 100% ready to do the exam. Because if you think you're sort of 50% on a good day, I'll get it. The chances are you won't because the nerves will take over on the day. And and, and, and the pressure that goes with that. Yeah. We have had two mm. candidates on the same boat. One who was actually before the back end of last year, a young lady who was sort of very bubbly. She had everything going for her, uh, knew exactly. She had everything pretty much just ticking over and just feeding yeah. information to the crew and they're and getting the answers back and really i had virtually nothing to examine her on because she's a total open book and yeah. she'd brief me she'd come down uh, i would look at the chart and she said we're just here now and so about another four or five minutes we should pick up a certain mark and then and i had nothing to ask and I had a, mm. another slightly older gentleman on board the boat who was probably on his limits and yeah. I had to keep asking him things all the time and at the end of it he says but you gave me much harder time than you gave her and I said mm. well she examined herself and I yeah. had to ask you the question because I was getting nothing back yeah which is good advice. a shame to a certain extent yeah but, but that's, that's the way it is it is as yes uh, yeah. I've got to find out the facts somehow and it's ideally yeah. 
if you tell me it, uh, mm. I don't always believe you. What you tell me? <laughs> As I said, I think you, I think you've seen it all before, Nigel. I don't think people can hide anything from you. Um, Nigel, I th- I th- let's, let's draw, if we may, a, a final con- a final question uh, into the frame uh, just to conclude today's podcast, which I have to say has been really enjoyable. I, I really do thank you very much indeed for taking the time uh, to, to, to join us for this. Best bit of advice you could give to uh, somebody considering taking a Yachtmaster uh, exam? The best bit of advice really is don't do it until you're ready. And certainly, if the instructor's only giving you a 50-50 chance, I'd say don't do it, because it probably puts you on a, only a 25% chance with extra nerves. That's probably the first thing. We, we're not there to fail people. I would mm-hmm. much rather somebody waited and came back and actually yeah. passed it at a later moment. If nothing else, it's far less work for us if, you, if, you, <laughs> if you're going to pass. And the next bit is put yourself in a situation where you can enjoy it, because... For the majority of candidates, actually, it should be, it's a process. It shouldn't be an over-stressful sit- situation. And it, there is a lot of humour involved in exams as well. And we meet a lot of very interesting people. Really, really good advice. And I think anybody listening to this podcast today will, uh, I hope, will influence and change and will maybe just make them think again before signing the uh, signing the cheque or uh, transferring the money over to the RYA is, are you ready? Are you are you mentally ready? But also to a to a point, physically ready? Because let's take it. Let's face it. You can have some pretty challenging challenging conditions out there, and you need to be up together to to make the best of what you're going to get out of the boats, what you're going to get out of your crew, and you need to be on top of top of your game really as well, don't you? Yes, certainly. And it's not looking at things in isolation. People think oh, my navigation is good, my port hand is good, my such and such is good. But can you be good at all of those at the same time? And that's what we're looking at. You, you can't just stop the boat and do navigation. Uh, you can't stop, stop the boat and do such and such. Uh, the boat cannot stop necessarily. Once mm. you're off the dock, you're moving. Yeah. So can you yeah. put the whole package together? But there's lots of space for more yacht masters. <laughs> well, I, I don't know how you fit everything in because clearly you are a busy, busy man. You've got uh, lots of courses that you're running. We'll talk about that on another podcast, if we may. Yep. Once again, thank you so very much indeed uh, for joining us on today's podcast with First Class Saying. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. It's been fun. Yes, look forward to next time. <laughs> Likewise, Nigel Rennie, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Business on board with Kerry Herford Jones. First Class Sailing, take the helm. I'm Kerry Herford-Jones and it's my absolute pleasure to introduce to you another guest on our series of podcasts with First Class Sailing. Today's guest is a former policeman who retired to Cowes and bought himself a yacht. Uh, he then became a cruising instructor. He's been with First Class Sailing for about seven years. As many of his students say about him, he is an epitome of living the dream. I'm delighted to be joined by Paul Pillsworth. Paul, thank you very much indeed for joining me. And perhaps you could just tell me how it was you got into sailing the bigger boats. Uh, I was heavily into windsurfing and catamaran sailing myself. Um, But an opportunity arose to go cruising on a a westerly, I think it was a westerly storm from Shamrock Quay of all places. And in fact, I even think it was the offices which are now used by First Class Sailing. I rather excitedly got myself down to Shamrock Quay from the middle of the country, which is Nottinghamshire, 
and joined a boat, a crew, and I got my windsurfer with me. We strapped up to the rails and off we set in the middle of uh, the afternoon. And, uh, we sailed, uh, we stopped somewhere in the Solent. I think I, I was unaware of the tides and all that sort of stuff sure. at this time. But obviously, we, uh, I realise now we're waiting for the correct tide. We were then uh, shot out at night through Hearst Narrows and sailed directly down to um, Guernsey, which wow. is about 100 nautical miles. So that was my first ever sail. I arrived there thinking, whew, that was a bit of an epic. <laughs> anyway, we went from Guernsey to uh, Alderney and then Alderney to back to France and then back home to uh, Shamrock Quay. And I think that was the, the sort of catalyst, if you like, that got me really into big boat sailing. A real baptism of fire in some ways, though. I mean, that's that whole kind of make or break. If you if you liked it that much, you're going to potentially do more. But if that had gone wrong, then that could have been the, the end of it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, of course, this is in the days before what we've got now with the um, satellite GPS navigation. So uh, I do remember the skipper at that time. Where he was a, a wiry old man uh, called Bruce, and he was a bit of a character. And, uh, yeah, he, he sort of said, well, I think I know where we are a lot of the time. And uh, <laughs> we did actually arrive quite safely. And uh, and I don't remember it, it was rough, but... Uh, yeah, I did feel, you know, a bit queasy at times, and as it does get you, in fact, it still does get me now, the old Malden air okay. on occasions, and uh, I've learned to deal with it. Yeah, it was, um, I developed a bit of a, a love-hate relationship with that, I think, at that time, and okay. uh, loving that I just wanted to do more of it. There were times when you're thinking, ooh, why am I doing this? Mm. And I, I sometimes reflect on that and think, what is it that about it that makes you want to do more of it? And uh, I've got several thoughts on that now. But um, at that time, it was, I think, the, the adventure of it was the main thing that, that hooked me into it, I think. Hooked. And there we go again. Yeah, you're, you're in. You're off and running now, aren't you? Yeah, here we go. Yeah, how, many, yeah. how many nautical puns can we possibly get in? And, uh, and that, that hook uh, clearly was, as you quite rightly say, was... was a, a multiplicity of different things that connected you to the seed, connected you to sailing. Yes. I'm interested now, what's a couple of the other things that, that you've now realised have given you that connection? Well, I think now, when I reflect back on what I really enjoy now, um, I class myself as a bit of a fair weather sailor, to be honest. Um, I like to <laughs> sail... I like to sail in good conditions. Um, you know, champagne sailing, as we, we say, <laughs> is, is ideal. And I, I reflect on some of the best sails I've had in I think, fondly back on those sort of voyages. But the setting off the adventure, the, the preparation, and I, I particularly like setting off early in the morning, probably before it gets light. And then the arrival, when you get there, you're a bit tired, but the arrival at a new destination is just fantastic. And um, the, the fact that you can hopefully go ashore and find a suitable <laughs> hostelry somewhere and talk talk the voyage through with your fellow shipmates is always a, a good thing I reckon yeah and that camaraderie I mean in many ways sailing does bring people together and, and not just not just that one experience but we talked to a lot of people about the connection they've made lasting a lifetime oh absolutely yeah um I often say sailing you meet so many people from all different walks of life I feel that sailing is a great leveler I mean I'm just a lad from as you can tell from my accent, I'm not from down the south. I'm from Doncaster um, in uh, in South Yorkshire. You know, 
I say, I think I, I was instilled a bit of a dream and have sort of made that happen. But on the way, I've met many fantastic people and got loads of friends through sailing as a result. And now, yeah, living down in in cows on the Isle of Wight, literally uh, with a boat down here, able to um, go sailing more or less when I like. It's, yeah. it's, it's great. Some of the things you've done, I was reading on your bio, I mean, a couple of things you've done there. I mean, the one that struck me straight away was that round Britain sail. I mean, wh when was that? Talk me through some of the highlights from that and what, what made you do it? What was the driver? Well, I'm, I'm married with to my wife, Sue, of 30-something years. Remember, quick, remember. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, she, she'll remind me. But one of the things that before we married, I, I said to her, because she was into windsurfing and, and sailing right. uh, when we first met, and I did say to her, said, would you like to sail around the world with me? Right. And she said, yes. You know, I think that was a, a sort of a, a dream at that time and didn't know whether it was going to happen or not. But then we got the opportunity because I retired from the police and Sue actually um, retired from right. her teaching position. And we had an opportunity to sail across the Atlantic, which we did. And so that was a, a tick. And then... We wanted to buy a boat, which we, we did. And then another challenge we set ourselves was to sail around Britain. So we worked to get in our boat ready to do that. And what a year we picked, 2018. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was absolutely wow. fantastic. So if people say, are you going to do it again? I'm a great, great believer in, uh, well, when it's just as, as great as it was, don't try and repeat <laughs> it because it won't be as good. <laughs> so we'll do other things now. We picked the, yeah. the best year, I think, in um, a long time. And we set off from cows and we decided that we were going to do a day, okay. day sail yeah. approach. So it was, um, again, sort of fair weather sailing if we could and sail it by day. Obviously, using the tide, so it did mean that at times we'd have to set off sure. very early in the morning, but that wasn't a problem. That was great. And we just about achieved that and sailed clockwise around Britain, just Sue and I. But we did meet several friends and relatives on the way and made some friends as we went around. We had just the best time. It was fantastic. We did a blog, so we kept people updated with that, and um, you know, met people at different places. They'd get on the boat, then they'd come so far with us, get off, and then we'd meet another crew and, and all this sort of stuff. And it was just a really brilliant experience. Can't recommend doing something like that enough. And to see your own country from the sea and the history that's mm. involved in it all, it was just. It is a this is a totally unique perspective, isn't it? Looking at, at land from sea. Absolutely. And then, you know, you go into somewhere and you think, well, I've not been in here before. What's it like? And of course, actually, it's never as bad as the pilot guides make it out to be, I find, you know, because they obviously rightly so say you should be cautious about this, yeah. cautious about that. No, it was never as, as bad as it was made out to be. And reflecting back on that and, and going back to why... I, I enjoy sailing in the Solent so much, and I often say it to my students, I think the Solent is the best place to learn to sail. And, of course, I encourage people to come to first-class sailing because I think the operation is, is first-class. Right. But the Solent itself is just a brilliant place mm -hmm. to learn to sail, and it certainly gave me a lot of confidence on this trip because we didn't go anywhere anything like as busy as sailing in the Solent and the challenges that you meet in the Solent really did set me up 
to do the, the Round Britain sail without any great problem. That's really inspirational, actually, uh, Paul, that you can actually look at that and compare it, as we all do, compare it where we're sailing now against where we've been and perhaps also where we might be wanting to go next. And I, having sailed the southern 30 odd years man and boy myself it's not until you as you quite rightly say go elsewhere that you can put it into perspective and and actually say in some ways how lucky we are to be able to sail down here and not take it for granted absolutely yeah it is uh, a great place i mean if you know it well like like obviously you and i do uh, there are there's always some way you can go no matter what the (laughs) the the weather's doing indeed um there's there's hopefully normally some way you can find on a very busy bank holiday where not everybody else goes to because yep. it, it does get very busy uh, it's perhaps one of its uh, downsides if you like uh, but yeah it, it is a fantastic cruising ground and i can't recommend it strong enough to anybody that wants to learn to sail it, it is the place to come having done all that uh, having got those big ticks in the box and bucket list ticked off etc etc you then decide that you want to give something back and, and become a cruising instructor was that was that it was there a charlie Tullock in, involvement in that yeah well what happened was uh, again being retired on the island i had got my ria yacht master qualification when I, we used to sail it up in the um, around anglesey in north wales and uh, came down to solent moved down here and i thought right cruising instructor you know lifelong learning is yep. something i think is important yep. and so just to push myself a little bit out of my comfort zone decided to do that and then see if i could actually um, teach sailing a, a phone call completely out of the blue right. from charlie tullock right. uh, from first class sailing i've never heard of before yeah. and uh, said Tell me a bit about yourself, Paul. I've, you know, you, you've been recommended. I thought, well, who recommended me? <laughs> it was actually the the, uh, the guy that uh, I did my uh, my instructor from my cruising uh, instructor course, as I found out later. Anyway, Charlie and I um, seemed to hit it off, and I, I went and he, he said, well, let's come over and we'll try you out. So I did, and I did a couple of courses for him, and. Uh, Thoroughly enjoyed it, and uh, although I, I am freelance uh, and not uh, beholden as such to anybody, I do choose to to work for first class sailing in my sailing instructing uh, capacity, more or less solely. Right. And 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 I know from the feedback we've been talking to a few of your um, <clears throat> a few of your ex students already, Paul. So you know, I've got the inside track <laughs> here. Is that I think that's that relative. Let me put the question another way. Um, I think it's actually the connection, the fact that you have such a love of sailing that comes across. And I know one or two of your of your students have gone on to bigger and, and much better things, um, basing their knowledge and a lot of their experience around your inspiration. So what you're passing on isn't just sailing skills. There's actually a bit in here about the values of living, about uh, getting on together as a crew, getting on together as people. Uh, but you've clearly obviously inspired quite a few people as well. So uh, hopefully you feel really good about that. Yeah, I really I take, take a, a lot of pleasure in that, actually, because um, I often say that um, I suppose I am quite passionate about sailing. And um, I feel that if you're passionate about something and, and you like it that much, um, it's only right isn't it that you try and pass that passion or that pleasure on to other people and that's that's what i that's the approach i take to sailing i i I say to people at the beginning of a course i said right they they state their objectives whether it be competent crew day skipper or or whatever 
and we, we go through that and I said well my main objective is to try and help you achieve your objectives but also when you get off this boat at the end of this course my objective is that you're going to want to say to me Paul I want to get back on another boat and I want to go sailing again yeah. so uh, that is one of the main things that I uh, strive to do well clearly you're getting that across and you know you're seeing people because you do as you quite rightly say you take comp crew you take day skipper you're taking people here particularly on the comp crew side really from the basics upwards and that's going to be quite challenging in some ways but quite empowering in others yeah it is um it's great uh, to, to see how people develop when you know they'll, they'll come on board a boat and they'll be quite nervous really and they're worried about being seasick and and you say, don't worry, you know, it'll be fine. We'll have a great time. We will. You will have a great time. <laughs> you paid for this. <laughs> I quite often say you, you're going to have a first-class experience as well, you know. Um, but, um, yeah, as the week progresses, you can see that, that people develop and they, um, they do have a great time. Yeah. And... Um, it's not just down to me, it's down to the whole thing. The, 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 the RYA scheme, I think, is great. It does set people up well. The, the approach that we take helps people achieve their objectives. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The syllabus is well-structured. But again, when you're sitting looking at Day Skipper, you're looking <coughs> at people there who've actually done, uh, hopefully, the theory course before they actually step on the boat. So there is... And there seems to be a few lessons to be learned from that about not leaving it too long between doing the theory course and then doing the practical. Is that something you'd recommend? Yes. Um, the, the, some people think that they can just progress from a competent crew or, or even sometimes they'll read the, the syllabus and think, well, I'm up for that, I can do it. And they come perhaps a little bit unprepared. Um, so I'd thoroughly recommend that if you're going through Day Skipper, you certainly have knowledge of the theory and would encourage people to have uh, taken the the RYA theory course or to be up to a a standard that is that meets those requirements um because it's it's not possible to teach all that theory well whilst doing the practical elements of the course as well and it's not really fair to the other students who might have been better prepared uh, to take up so much of an instructor's time mm -hmm. because it is a very intensive course. Yeah. And I get off a boat feeling, at the end of the week, feeling pretty drained, to be fair, because I do try and give my all. And, you know, you've got to be on it all the time. So even though it's not unusual to be starting work at 7 o'clock in the morning, sometimes you're finishing 11, 12, 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're long days. Yeah. So it's, it's right and proper, I think, that people come to these courses fully prepared mm. and have done, you know, done the sort of homework or the background stuff. Mm. And also, it's handy if they've got, got a bit of time under the belt, so to speak, confidence in, in handling the boat if they're going for a day skipper yeah. again it's it's not really truly realistic to think you can just have had a week sailing and then come back for another week and then you get your your skipper's ticket it's not really just a, a, an attend and pass course no. it's it's you've got to be able to reach the standards that we want you to achieve so you can do it safely that's the main thing
yeah and and as you say get get more out of it as well and it's not it's not just about the ticket is it we're talking here now a bit more fundamental uh, than that we're talking about actually understanding not just the boat but the crew uh, and, and the relationship between that and getting the best out of the boat and themselves absolutely yeah um yes you can be a great sailor can't you but um if you can't actually organize a crew uh, as a skipper and that might mean just being aware of somebody you know not feeling too good um you're looking after their welfare uh, make sure everybody's safe you know you've got to be thinking about planning you've got to be thinking right is it time that somebody went to put the kettle on because you know let's have a cup of tea yeah. and just simple things like that yeah make make it such more of an enjoyable experience you know Has somebody got some sweets in the pocket that they can share around and it is little things like that that um, really go a long way to making a happy happy crew yeah well fun fun is fun is a necessity on on sailing that's for sure and let's look a little bit more detail of the comp crew because i know it's one thing that the the office first class sailing office often get asked about is do i need any time on a boat before doing comp crew and and comp crew itself what is it what does it involve in, in in basic terms what what's the instructor going to actually try and get across to me well my approach to the comp crew is i would say um and i have i've taken people out sailing who've never been on a boat before right so that's the first thing i don't think yeah, you need any prerequisite uh, just come with an open mind and a willingness to learn really and then um, my approach to it is um, I will uh, get them through the, the RYA syllabus as a comp crew and I'm saying basically I'm going to try and achieve your objectives and make you a competent person on a boat at the end of this, this course. And yeah, we, I'm, I'm sure that there's nearly a 100% pass rate on that because we, we, we can do it yes. in, in the week provided people have got the can-do attitude. And I'm thinking, I think there's one person I can think of in the seven years that I've been doing it, and he really just didn't take to sailing. Okay. It just wasn't for him. Okay. And at the end of it, uh, I don't think he it was, he said, look, I've tried. Yeah. And I said, well, I've tried. And yeah. it just just wasn't, it didn't float his boat. Hey. Yeah, yeah, they're ticking all the boxes now, Paul. Here we go. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> I've always got a full house of bingo on this uh, on this card I'm running for, you know. Oh, and there's, and there's more, and there's more. <laughs> so let's try and draw some conclusions from all of this, that, that the people who have perhaps not come across an instructor uh, before, uh, you know, you're not scary people. You're time-served, seafaring-going enthusiasts for the sea, and you want to get the best, uh, you want them to get the best out of themselves, but you want to impart some knowledge, you want to help them to learn and, and to enjoy their, their leisure. That's right, yeah. Um, yeah, I think uh, Charlie's approach to um, the, the people that he uh, employs uh, to teach this is that um, we are all experienced uh, people. Uh, men and women who love sailing and want to pass that on to people. We, I think most of us are, are part-time, uh, which, which is great because actually, as I said earlier, it, for the instructor, it's a, it's a full-on week's course. Yeah. So at the end of the week, you're very tired. If, uh, as in some operations I know, uh, the instructor then has to get on to another course mm. straight away, uh, I think... Um, you're going to be struggling to give 
you, the instructor give your best yeah. as we try to do. Well, we do. And that, that I think, is a, a great approach from first class's point of view is where, you know, the most I'll teach is, is five to perhaps eight days. And then, then you have a break and then you can come back fully refreshed. Mm. And again, I come back and I feel like I'm looking forward to <laughs> taking people out sailing again. You know, I've had a break. I've done something else. I come back. Yeah. And and, I, and you're full of enthusiasm again, and yeah. it just recharges your battery. Yeah. And hopefully, and I know that I can pass that on to students. And uh, they, we meet and greet, we have a chat, and you can feel the ice breaking as you know on the first evening that we're, we're we're all talking about our aims and objectives for the week ahead. And I think it helps to put people at ease, and that's how you get the best out of people. So, Paul, what is your next step? What, what are you going to do next for, from your personal perspective? We were hoping this year to do, um, we, we taught, my wife and I um, love sailing and cruising. We were hoping to go to the Silly Isles this year. That was our nice. objective, but I don't, know whether, I don't know whether that's going to be achievable. So if that doesn't happen this year, it might be next year. But my uh, objective as well, uh, perhaps a long-term one, is I've got three grandchildren and I'm hoping that I can encourage them to uh, carry on sailing or to, to become interested in sailing. My two children are interested in it, okay. uh, some not as much as I am, but they will. They've, all, they've done channel crossings with me yeah, and things yeah, like that. Yeah. So, yeah, as from a family point of view, keep the family uh, sailing with friends and family. Whether we'll do another big trip or not, I don't know, um, but we will see. Never we'll say see. never again. Never say never. Never say never. Paul Pillsworth, it's been an absolute joy to talk today on the First Class Sailing Podcast. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you, Kerry. It's been a pleasure. Business on board with Kerry Herford Jones. First Class Sailing, take the helm. I'm Kerry Herford Jones. Welcome to another in the series of First Class Sailing Podcasts. I'm delighted today to welcome him as a guest a gentleman who came to sailing rather later in life and gave up his career in IT to then get on the bottom rung of the sailing industry as a deckhand on the Challenger boats. He came through the world's toughest yacht race in 2004 and 5, sailing a 72-foot racing yacht with a crew of 18, racing the wrong way around the world. 15 years on from that experience, he's now clocked over 260,000 sea miles, completed another round-the-world yacht race, this time as skipper, and six transatlantic arc races, six fastnet races, and 16 Atlantic crossings, to name but a few. He is principal of his own RYA sailing school and instructs and examines for a number of other sailing schools, including first-class sailing. Please welcome, then, Ricky Chalmers, Great to talk to you today, and thank you for joining us on today's podcast. No problem. Great to be here. Uh, Ricky, you've done thousands of miles at sea, but before we get to how that all worked for you and why you did what you did, let's let's start with what got you into sailing in the beginning. Well, traditionally, people then say that they started sailing as a kid, but not for me. Uh, it was a total accident. I was in my mid-30s, pursuing a career in RT, never been on a sailing boat before, and um, accidentally booked on a... A sailing holiday. We'd actually booked on a, a two-week on narrow boats on the Welsh Canal, and they phoned us up and said we couldn't get the first week because of some engine problem. So I was scrabbling around to find something else to do for our two-week holiday, and thought, well, sailing boats, uh, narrow boats, all pretty much the same sort of thing. 
and so booked a week on a sailing boat for myself and my family. Uh, turned out I'd booked on a competent crew course and we absolutely loved it. And then when we did the week on the narrow boat, we found that was actually quite boring. You having got your feet wet, you then ended up buying a boat. Yeah, so um, I suppose going through a midlife crisis, or at least that's what my daughters tell me, looking for something to do, something, some excitement. And after we did this competent crew course, we um, went to the Southampton Boat Show, looked around at boats, walked out of the Southampton Boat Show with a Laser 2000 dinghy, realized that was totally different to the uh, Saddler 34 that we'd done our competent crew course on. Had another look and we bought a Beneteau 38. When we got that finally in about April the next year, hopped on board and then realized that the competent crew course had taught us nothing about how to sail the boat, but more importantly, how to park the boat. So we realized that we didn't know everything and started at the bottom doing our day skipper course and carrying on until eventually uh, finishing our ROA series of courses. And then you ended up crossing the Atlantic or... In fact, more than that, actually sailing around the world. Yes, yeah, so just so happened the boat was moored in a marina called Ocean Village in Southampton. We'd just come back from passage we'd done, I think it was down to Plymouth and back. Arrived back on the boat and there were all these big 72-foot steel boats with banners all over the place and a big marquee on the um, marina mall. We were intrigued by what was going on and uh, walked into the uh, tent, spoke to some people and walked out having signed up to do the 2004-5 BT Global Challenge. <laughs> you make it just sound like a walk in the park. This is no ordinary challenge. Yes, I didn't quite realise at that stage what the race entailed, but pretty soon I did my first training course down in Plymouth in November, I think it was in November 99 or so, first training course for the race, uh, in the middle of winter, off of Plymouth, down to the Lizard, um, it was a horrendous force nine and massive big waves and stuff, but absolutely loved it and realized that, yes, I really did want to do this this race around the world. The, the big difference of the Global Challenge and many other races that go around the world is it was the only one which goes the so-called wrong way around the world. So instead of going down to Cape Town and turning left, you go down to Cape Horn and turn right. But going the wrong way around it brings its own challenges but clearly one that you relished. Uh, yeah, it was uh, a very different life to what I'd lived before. I really loved the uh, challenge of it. I loved sailing. I loved the adventure. And by the time we got to Cape Town, I realised that I didn't want to go back to my day job when I finished the race and that I was going to change my life entirely and um, pursue sailing as a career. And a question that I have to ask you, because you can tell I've been fed this question by somebody else, is, um, Ricky, what, what is a Spanish windlass? Okay, so Spanish windlass is a, a way of fixing things, really. Uh, it's a loop of rope, and uh, then you put a big screwdriver in and twist, 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 and it tightens things up. So on the Global Challenge race, one of the spreaders, which uh, support the mast, really, that started peeling away and breaking, um, and we used a Spanish windlass to uh, spread it back onto the mast. Uh, essentially, it's a loop of rope, and then you put in a, a big screwdriver and twist away. You, again, you just make all this stuff sound so easy when you think about the oceans that you're crossing there and the, the wilderness of it all and the fact that you're actually out there having to make these, these repairs, these running repairs happen with clearly no outside support. You, you're on board that boat and you've got to get that boat from A to B to C to D and so on. Uh, and, you, and you're on your own, really, as a crew. 
That is part of the challenge and the enjoyment of sailing, actually, is that you are on your own. And often the uh, the repairs are the most fun part of it because you can't just let somebody else do it. You have to do it. As I found out when I skippered the race around the world uh, in 2007, a lot of the job of a skipper is actually crew management and maintaining the boat. And almost your entire life is spent busy trying to fix something and trying to fashion bits and pieces together to fix something because you can't just go to the shop and get the right piece. So that leads into that whole uh, conversation about rig failure because you have actually experienced a massive rig failure, haven't you? Yes, I did the um, 2007-8 Clipper race around the world on a boat called Durban Clipper. Its official name was Durban 2010 and beyond. It was uh, sponsored by Durban Tourism as part of the... um, 2010 uh, football world cup campaign and yeah we left Qingdao in china bound for hawaii and got as far as about 900 miles from from hawaii when the uh, rig fell down uh, the mast fell down yeah we had to uh, be inventive <laughs> that conjures up all sorts of things but but clearly you managed to get the job done and, and got through it and out the other side how do you cope with that kind of experience particularly as you quite rightly say in terms of actually managing your crew in that kind of situation well the, the crew management is quite interesting the, the first thing i obviously wanted to do was make sure everybody's safe so there were five people on deck at the time i was below deck actually at the navigation station speaking on the vhf to uh, another skipper and another boat and i'd actually just try to put the vhf handset back into its cradle when i heard this massive crack I actually thought it was a bit of static electricity and lifted the, the uh, handset off again to check that there wasn't some issue. Uh, yes. And then, then obviously heard all the screaming from on deck saying that the whole mast had come down. I went up the companionway steps and stupidly, I guess, looked up to uh, where the mast and sails would be and there was nothing up there. At that stage, it was the boat had come to a stop. It was lolling around in not too bad uh, sea condition. And it was a case of just trying to sort out the mess. First stage was to just make sure the crew on deck were safe. And they came down below, uh, woke up all the crew, because we had a crew of uh, 16, I think, at that stage. They all woke up and got in their life jackets. I went up on deck and just uh, assessed the situation. The mast was hanging down on the starboard side. It was rubbing against the side of the deck, uh, side of the hull. It was taking off a lot of the branding, which is annoying because you spent your life on that race making sure that the <laughs> boat was boat was looking good and properly branded. But I could see it was also rubbing through the um, gel coat and into the fiberglass. Yeah. So uh, the worry at that stage is um, that if the mast punctures the hull, then you've got a whole whole different situation. So the priority at that stage was just to clear the mast away from the hull, stop that uh, abrasion and then sort the mess out after that. So yeah, it, it took about four or five hours. Uh, of course, happened at three in the morning, so it was all dark. Of course it did, always, always going to yeah, happen, you know that. The, the law, law of the sea, really. <laughs> yeah, so next morning we had sorted it all out and we were just bobbing around, trying to establish what to do next. You've done by your own estimation uh, over 260,000 sea miles. From all of that experience, from all that time at sea, with all those people you sail with, couple of uh, things you've learnt in all that time at sea what what would you say you've really taken from that experience the, the, the biggest thing is is making sure you do things properly a lot of sailing is pleasurable and and nice and and you enjoy it and sometimes you you don't do the things that you you know you should do so 
a daily rig check, for example, or daily deck deck walk, it's called when you're sailing across oceans, going up on deck and, you know, walking around and checking things. And when things go wrong, often they go wrong with small bits and pieces um, and fixing them immediately rather than, than waiting. Small problems always turn into big problems if you don't sort them out. There's a couple of yeah. well-known and, and quite uh, useful sayings in sailing, never walk over a job, you know, always make sure that, that things are done. Most things are all about preparation and making sure that problems don't happen, but invariably things do happen at sea, and then it's just making sure you fix them. You do a lot of work now with first-class sailing. What's the relationship between you and them that, that works from your perspective? Well, initially after the Global Challenge, I then got qualified as an instructor and started teaching on their boats. They, at that stage, had two uh, Bavarias, I think. I think they've since then replaced them a number of times arms with new boats but I originally started uh, instructing on their boats doing day skipper and competent crew type courses and then moved back to sailing on big boats actually back on the same boats that I did the global challenge race on because an organization called tall ships had bought four of the challenge boats and uh, started sailing with them then Charlie at first class sailing was looking for a skipper to uh, skipper one of the challenge boats on I think the first thing I did for him was around the island race using the challenge boats and so there was a nice tie-up there I'd worked for Charlie before at first class sailing I was working for tall ships uh, so I started skippering boats uh, for Charlie on that and then after that in I think 2014 was the first arc i did uh, which is the atlantic race for cruisers across from the canaries to the caribbean and since then most of the uh, big boat racing i do for first class sailing uh, has been on the on the tall ship challenger boats i still sail uh, uh, some of the small boats for them and do run some courses such as sea survival courses and first aid courses as well but um, most of it is on the the big challenges which is a bit like being reunited with old friends Yes, the, the challenges are, I guess, my favorite boat, though, the ones that I fit, did the first big ocean sailing on. They are fantastic boats. They're designed for sailing the wrong way around the world. They steal, they're 50 tons, and you couldn't wish for a better boat to be on uh, if you're sailing across an ocean. So, uh, clearly, from your perspective, when we come out of the, uh, the situation we're in at the moment, great opportunities for people to really get behind the wheel of, of something quite challenging hence the name, but by definition, the boat themselves. And you're going to be working with first-class sailing for the foreseeable as well. Yeah, I think the, the next thing that's scheduled, uh, obviously the, uh, the sailing schedule has been uh, modified quite a lot because of the coronavirus, but I think the next thing we're doing is uh, in September around the island race, uh, which has been postponed from its normal June start date to September. Hopefully that goes ahead. Again, that'll be on uh, the 72-foot challenge boats for first class sailing. Really looking forward to that one because they've told me that they're going to try and get a crew made up of uh, all the people that myself and my wife Kirsty have sailed with over the years on the challenges. Oh, brilliant. Oh, what a great idea. And Kirsty, of course, was uh, your first mate, uh, hence the romance blossoming while you're at sea, I presume. Yes, so uh, Kirsty is also now qualified as an instructor and normally on the challenges, she's my first mate. It makes for a happy relationship, really. Last couple of questions for today's podcast. One I know a lot of people always are interested in uh, is, of course, the boats, the, the, the yachts like Gypsy Moth 4. Now, that must be quite an experience for you personally to be skippering a historic yacht like that. 
Yeah, it's one of the uh, more quirky yachts that Kirsty and I have sailed on. I guess the first sail we did on her was around uh, the UK back in 2017. It was the 50th anniversary of Chichester returning from his round-the-world um, sail on Gypsy Moth 4. So we took her around the UK as part of that celebration. Brilliant. And since then, we've done lots of sailing on her. She's probably the most uncomfortable boat I've ever sailed on. She's obviously right. designed for, for single-handed sailing. Uh, so she's yes. quite cramped downstairs, normally with a crew of four, which is what we uh, sail her with. So four crew and then myself and Kirsty. So it's six people on a bo- boat designed for one. one. And she's... Yeah, yeah, and yeah. She, She's got got some some quirky habits. I think Chichester was pretty well known for hating the boat. And when he got back uh, from his round the world, uh, 67 was it? He he didn't want anything further to do with uh, the boat. And it it sat there and languished for for many months. Mm. So it's, it's not the most comfortable boat to sail, but it's beautiful. It's got lovely lines. It's actually quite easy to sail. And as a crew because it's designed obviously for single handed sailing. So every job is fairly sure. simple on the boat. Uh, and she sails very nicely uh, in the right sort of wind. She is very slow. We tried to do the uh, fast net race last year uh, on Gypsy Moth and realized that actually she's not much of a racer when it comes to uh, competing <laughs> against modern boats because she was built in 1966-1967. She's very heavy, made out of mahogany, and yes, doesn't really sail. So we had a a rather pitiful experience sailing to the Eddystone <laughs> Lighthouse and back where we finished more than a day behind oh my the, the second and <laughs> last place boat. Uh, but it's, it's the experience, Ricky. It's the experience. Yes. No, I mean, she's a she's a, a quirky boat and I, I do quite like sailing on it just simply for the fact that when you turn up in a marina, everybody looks at you and you end up being able to get yeah. the prime position. We took her down to La Sobe de Long. Yeah the year before last 2018 for the start of the uh, golden globe race which was uh, a reenactment of uh, robin knox johnson and crowhurst and various other people uh, doing the the golden globe race in in 1968 i think it was and so chichester and gypsy moth obviously started that whole idea of sailing around the world uh, single-handed we were there with gypsy moth forms part of the start line for the uh for the Golden Globe oh. race, along with Suhaili, which is Robin Knox Johnson's uh, uh, boat. So that, w- that was quite good fun, and it was quite enjoyable, actually. Um, the fleet moved off to the Sob de Long for the start of the Golden Globe race. Best memory of that was sailing after the fleet and uh, Sir Robin Knox Johnson on Suhaili. A glorious moment as Sir Robin wasn't very impressed as us coming sliding past her. Suhaili seemed to be struggling a little bit. So he had other crew on the, on board with him on Suhaili and every now and again he sort of poked his head up and had a look out and gave me a scowl and then went back down below. And when we did pass him and then I jibed in front of Suhaili, got some lovely pictures of Suhaili. Sir Robin's really done her up nicely now. I got some lovely pictures and lovely video of, of her sailing quite nicely, but um, yeah, he wasn't impressed and didn't, didn't bother coming back on deck to have a look at us. <laughs> Just waved from down below. Last question for you. People thinking about getting on board Challenger, getting on board, uh, getting out there and getting sailing, doing some of the longer distance stuff with you, with first class sailing. What would your recommendation be to them? What would your thoughts be to pass on to people giving that consideration at this moment in time? The the bigger boats are very different from little boats. uh, And one of the nice things about doing, say, the Ark or the... uh, 
the Fastnet race is taking people who've got little boat experience, uh, so they've done their day skipper or their yacht master even, but they've only ever sailed on a on a forty foot boat or thirty six or thirty eight foot boat, uh, and seeing the uh, joy in their faces and the and the sudden realization that uh, as boats get bigger, the loads get much more extreme and the ropes get much mm. thicker and and the whole process of sailing uh, is very different. But that's part of the enjoyment that I get out of sailing is is teaching people and seeing how people develop uh, from sailing small boats to crewing on 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 large boats. Um, mm. So that is quite part of the enjoyment. You've got to be a little careful in, in jumping straight onto a big boat yep. from having no sailing experience. We have had quite a lot of success with that. Sometimes it's easier to teach people because they don't have all the little flaws and faults which they've uh, and mistakes which they've got into, bad habits they've got into, and you can teach them from scratch. But often they have the sort of sunny brochures <laughs> and blue skies and blue flat sea with dolphins jumping in mind. Uh, and then they, they realize that the North Atlantic in yeah. particular can be quite a rough place and they don't quite know what they've let themselves in for. But it is enjoyable and I think it's it's very accessible. People from all backgrounds and all skills can get on board and, and experience what ocean sailing is all about. In a reasonably controlled environment or at least one with the right people on board giving you the support to help you through it and to get the best out of it as well. Yeah, the, the nice thing about sailing on the challenges is, first of all, you've got a brilliant platform. It's a boat which is uh, really suited for ocean sailing. It's designed for that. It's quite luxurious downstairs or down below. People have their own bunk. You've got decent cooking facilities and decent saloon. And uh, it's not it's not similar to a lot of other race boats, hmm. uh, if you like. If, if, you look, if you look at, you know, a Volvo boat or a Clipper boat, they're designed for out-and-out racing and they, they're pretty sparse downstairs or down below. Because they were designed for single boat racing or single fleet racing, they could make them quite luxurious down below. So it's a very safe platform as the first thing. Secondly, uh, you, you're with a bunch, of, uh, a bunch of other people, a crew, who typically have mixed abilities, but you can always learn something from other people. And uh, then finally, they are, 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 if you like, sailed by... Uh, professionals. So uh, joining me, I have a, a fully qualified uh, professional first mate. Normally that's Kirsty. And then uh, we also have two uh, watch leaders who are, uh, are um, well experienced in the boats as well. Ricky, you've, you've sold it to me. Uh, absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today and uh, really for getting across some of your experience, but more importantly, teeing up what people could experience or could look forward to experiencing uh, with you on one of the Challenger boats or, uh, or other ones, including the historic yacht. So thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have because it's been a real delight. No problem, mate. I hope to see you sailing with me soon. Business On Board with Carrie Herford-Jones.